Hi, everybody. Welcome back to The Undiscovered You, a podcast for people who feel like they have so much more to offer, but are somehow stuck where they are. I'm your host, Kimberly Johnston, and this season, we're speaking all about the skills that pay the bills. I cannot express how excited I am to have Amanda McKenzie, OBE and CEO of Business in the Community with me today. Hi, Amanda. Hello. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So the reason I'm so excited to have Amanda on this program is because I think she has such an amazing experience in terms of places she's worked, the way that she's used her transferable skills to move from one sector to another. So Amanda, I'm just going to have you kick off. Can you kind of, I know you've done a lot, but can you give us an idea of the kind of five minutes sort of moving from sector to sector background of your history? I'll I'll do my very best. Um, But I always think it's worth starting to say that I did, my first ambition was to be a ballet dancer. Um, And I did audition um, for the Royal uh, Ballet School, but they, I had to take my mum and they took one look at me and decided I was the wrong shape. Um, uh, And then I tried to become a doctor and that didn't work. Um, But anyway, after all of that, I basically started my working career in advertising, which is where I spent the first 10 years. It's an incredibly good grounding, actually, because you learn client skills, managing clients, uh, managing multiple stakeholders um, and and learning how to think. I always think learning how to think about a problem is almost the essence of something that's multi-transferable, because if you know how to pull apart an issue, it doesn't matter whether it's this is brave, nuclear uh, in nu- nuclear exam question, that, that's perhaps a little bit, for, well, a million times beyond me, or, you know, something around how, how a retailer might tackle a problem. I think you can, you know how to get at the answer. So I think that was very good grounding in order to help me move between sectors, which of course was not the plan. It's just that I've tended to kind of find adventures and want challenges. And so they happen to have turned up in a sector that maybe wasn't uh, one that that felt naturally the place I should go. So from advertising, I then went to British Airways Air Miles. Um, in essence, that was using almost none of the advertising skills because it was effectively a lot of direct marketing, um, launching the first website, which seems ridiculous now, but it was 20 odd years ago. Um, so there was some sort of innovative skills in there. It was a totally new sector to me, but I, I was basically using general management skills. So it kind of forces you to think about the basics of how you manage and how importantly you manage in an area that you don't know um, and you don't know things. Um, anyway, from there, I went to BT. So again, different sector, but similarly, it was about actually going back to my roots, managing the advertising. So I transferred to a much, much bigger company and I was looking at the procurement. I managed all the marketing services um, and we launched broadband at that time, which was quite an extraordinary thing. If you think about it, you know, in the old days was ISDN dial-up, which feels mm. extraordinarily old now. Um, so launching something that no one knew they needed at a time when they couldn't conceive what it was, was, was you know, a fantastic challenge, really. Um, From there, I spent a year working for HP, tech company, but what they wanted. So I think this is an interesting thing. It's where a company wants the skills you've got in your background, and they're willing to almost forsake sector experience. So where that trumps. So HP, that happened 
Similarly, British Gas, where in the, when I left, I was their commercial director, but, but I was their customer director before that. So again, it was bringing together multiple customer management, marketing. So it was broadening each time um, the skills. And then I guess the culmination in terms of um, an executive role was at Aviva, where again, I knew, frankly, nothing about financial services, nothing about insurance. But what they were willing to do was trade that because I did have that breadth of marketing and communications and public policy skills by then, which they felt. And sorry, the key thing was the, they wanted someone who knew how to manage name changes. And I hadn't done many, but I'd certainly done a few. Uh, in small ways. Um, and that was the sort of the skill that trumped almost the insurance knowledge. So it worked for me because I thought it was an extraordinary adventure. The other side of it as well was being um, the first woman on their executive committee after 300 years. So again, that was going to be quite a pioneering side of the role in a way to try and help the culture be a much more inclusive culture. Um, so they're my executive roles. We can talk about my non-exec further on, I'm sure. Fabulous. And so with with this, what I'm finding really interesting is you're using a lot of vernacular about how they were willing to take the skills that you had. And do what did what did you have to do? Did you have to sell yourself? Did you have to package up your skills or was it they took a look at your resume and saw them for themselves? Oh, definitely a bit of both. But I would also say that the um, the search companies that I used, the people that I worked with, Similarly, they were a bit more enlightened. So they weren't, they didn't just want a solution for a job with a you know, square peg, square hole. So they were willing to go look at this candidate. On the surface, she might not have the right experience, but the reason why she might be interesting. Um, and then similarly, um, and of course, I didn't finish off the story. Then there was a secondment, which again, I'll talk about later, but that didn't necessarily require a transferable skill. And then clearly coming to run a charity um, was very different. And in fact, I remember the headhunters at that time going, but you've never been a CEO. And I'm going, no, but I, I did manage a budget of one and a half billion and I had one and a half thousand people. So, you know, it's kind of like, what? okay, it wasn't technically a PL, but surely I've got some complex management skills inherent in that that's possible. So I think there's times when you have to kind of stand up for what you are bringing to that party. But but frankly, it does require someone else to be a little bit more open-minded. Um, mm. You know, my first, even my first job in advertising was, I remember being told, you'll never get into advertising, you're not from Oxbridge. So there did, there was a deal somewhere. Someone clearly thought, we don't mind if she's not from Oxbridge, we'll take her. And clearly, obviously the world's moved on, thank heavens since then. But, but, but I, you know, that does take two to tango on that one. And I think that's interesting because you said at the beginning, you like to find adventures and you like to look for challenge. And it's almost like you found a search function, an executive search function that had that same sort of feeling <laughs> about them. And I wonder if that's something for our listeners to think about is that if they're having trouble moving sectors or they're having trouble kind of getting into a different area, whether they need to think about, is there either someone that is, you know, an executive search function or someone within your organization or someone within a different organization who may have that kind of broader ability to think outside the box and not say, you're not ticking these boxes, therefore we're not going to bring you in for an interview. No, I think that's a really brilliant thought, actually, because, I mean, clearly it wasn't the same search person across my career, but mm. clearly you, there are many, fortunately, enlightened people in that. I think the other thing is, you, you, everyone talks about kind of having your personal board, your group of people that you turn to. So one, they'll help you with your own narrative. 
But also, as we all know, the, the real power of sponsors, um, not just mentors, is what they say about you when you're not in the room, as it were. And so we all know them going, this particular person, they're incredibly adept, they're very agile, they can move. You kind of need them understanding you. So I think, I guess the shorthand of all of that is you need people around you, either in search or as your sponsors or indeed your colleagues, who get you. And in a way, are probably just at those moments when you might have a low ebb, are going to give you confidence back about actually that essence of you as well. So for our listeners who aren't aware of what a personal board is, can you give us an idea of what people need to be doing to set up their personal board? Okay, I mean, I, I've, it's a phrase I've stolen. I mean, I've, I've never genuinely never thought, oh, let's, let's create a personal board and I'll put all these people on it. It's just that I know over the years, I've, I've come across people that, who I trust, who get me, who, who really, who want the best for me. And that sounds awful that you're surrounded by people that don't. I don't mean that, but particularly, they'd go out of their way to want the best for you. And it, they, they are just people that over the years, you just ring them up and go, this is what I'm thinking about next move. What do you think? Or they'll come across something. Um, my, my role at Aviva was, um, I'm not sure I should say who it was, so I'm, I'll debate whether I want to say who it was. But this particular person rang me up and said, I've been rung up about this role, not for, for them, but if I knew anyone, I think you should go for it. And I, not for me, it's insurance, it's boring. I'm not, I'm not interested. And then he rang me up a week later and said, I think you're wrong. I think you should go and talk to them and, and then Ripple Dissolve, I had the most, I loved my time at Aviva, eight years, very happy. We achieved a lot. It was incredibly fulfilling. But he had the temerity, tenacity, not the temerity, the tenacity to kind of push me in a moment where I'd slightly dismissed it. So I think it's, it's a group of people who seriously know you and, and are going to push you maybe um, and have got your back as well. Yeah. And if you don't have that in your life, start to find it and kind of find those people that will also challenge you, properly challenge you when you're making decisions. So one of the examples I give, so on our um, mentor, so marvelous mentor season, one of the people I had on is someone I call a friend tour. And this is one of my dear friends who holds me accountable all the time. So if mm -hmm. I'm making a change because I want to spend more time with my children, if she sees me doing something where I'm actually still going at 120 miles an hour, she pulls me back and says, why did you do this again? What was that reasoning? So I would put her probably on my on my board for sure. Definitely. No, no, that's so funny because I was having a conversation with a, one of my very best friends last night. Exactly. And I just one of the phrases I said was, you know me. So just call me out if this yeah. if you in something that I've just said. So I think it's it's absolutely vital. And I think, you know, you don't have to construct it like it's some kind of governance program, but just noticing those people who who for whom there's that natural with whom there's that natural simpatico and, mm -hmm. and that, as you say, that sort of relationship is emerging. And then just remember that they're there to call on when you do need them, just as you would be in reverse. So no need to take minutes is what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. One of the things, Amanda, that is coming out so strongly here, which I am just loving, is the fact that you do not limit yourself. A lot of times I feel like people sometimes blame everybody else for limiting them and not seeing their potential and not seeing what they can do. But what is coming out so amazingly to me is that you do not limit yourself. Can you at all share with our listeners, how, how did you get there? How does one get to a point where they say, okay, 
I understand this is a CEO role. I might not have been a CEO, but look at all these transferable skills that I can bring where I basically have been. Because some people, they would, someone would say, you haven't been a CEO. And they would say, nope, I haven't. Let's move on to the next role. Okay. So um, I, I'm not sure I've ever thought of it in those terms. So that's quite interesting. I think probably three things, if I can now remember the three that I thought about when you were talking to me just now. One is, I think, defining the mission. So was I, some people, for them, being a CEO is almost the end in itself. They're desperate. They want to be a CEO because somehow that's that's a thing worthy of, of. for me, I wanted to do, I wanted the organisation I work for, Business in the Community, to be incredibly vibrant. I wanted it to be irresistible, full of remarkable people. Hmm. And, you know, I, I won't go into the purpose of the organization, but I wanted a very clear sense of what it was about. That was my particular driver. In order to achieve that, it just happened to come with a title that was CEO. So in a way, the limitation was only, do I, can I get to the point where there's a mission that I buy into that I want to kind of go metaphorically go to war over? Fine. It happens to have that title. You're not going to have the influence and the impact unless you take that title. Great. Well, that's, that's the deal. So it wasn't the CEO piece with that. So I think that's one thought. Always think about what's the mission, what you're in service of, and, you know, whatever is commensurate with that, that's fine. But just because I think that makes you not feel too scared by it. Because mm. CEO is a bit like the leadership word. You know, I do suddenly feel some people need to suddenly act and behave differently, somehow like put Superman pants on the outside. And it's like, who wants to do spend their life trying to be something they're not? So I think that's really important. I think the other thing is, what's the worst that can happen? I mean, in you know, on the whole, and we know this particularly for women, you know, the kind of much versed stat around women are always like 100% qualified to do or 95% qualified to do something. And the, and the equivalent for men tends to be 65 and they'll reckon they can do it. So you go, if you've got 95% of what it takes to do something, then, then the worst that can happen is that you've got the humility to learn what you don't know. I mean, what an extraordinary thing. So I think I always say to myself, what is the worst that can happen? Now, you know, it, None of the jobs I've had involve operating on people's lives, you know, where their lives are at stake. So, you know, the worst that can happen is not that bad. Um, clearly, I wouldn't want to mess up an organisation, but fortunately, there is governance around that. And it's not a thing that happens overnight. So we always make too much of a big deal of things. Actually, a lot of the time is the case. Um, and then I suppose in terms of, you know, what hasn't limited me, funnily enough, um, being rejected early, I think there's some stats around that. Um, and, the, and, you know, it's like the, my life didn't end because I was the wrong shape to be a ballet dancer. <laughs> it's like, actually, that, that, and a whole other world opened up to me. And my life didn't end because I'm not a doctor. And frankly, what a good thing for the world I wasn't um, in so many ways. So, you know, that wasn't so bad either. And I think that essence of that, I always, I'm always struck by, um, and this is, possibly a little old fashioned now, but I sometimes observe as, as we, as women are trying to kind of get stronger and better um, in terms of their ability to cope with a lot of this stuff. What can we learn from men in the workplace? Sorry, I've gone slightly off piste. Am I allowed to? Can yes, I just quickly do Of course you are. Fly off piste. Great, great, great. You can jump so in a helicopter I, and jump I, out of it. 
that's our off piece. It's a marvelous. I love it. I love it. So um, I think, you know, chaps go on a rugby pitch. As I say, this is, you know, this is, a, I've learned this over 20 years. So I would say this is not that women don't go on a rugby pitch now because they do, which is brilliant. But anyway, you know, they go on a rugby pitch, they bite each other's ears, they play dirty, they play mean. And then as soon as the game's over, they're in the bar. So that what what they're very good at disassociating personal from I'm on the pitch, I'm playing a game. But in that moment, everything matters. It all counts. But then I put it down and I leave it that I think that's quite a healthy. I'm not saying I'm not suggesting life's a game and you should take it like that. I think we've got issues in society where maybe that's a problem. But I think in that moment, I think that's quite important for women to think about. And then the second piece is which links back to your original question, is um, from an early age, certainly when I was growing up, it was the chaps that asked the girls out. Mm. And so if if you were asked out and you said to the chap no, um, they'd go, okay, fine, they'd move on to someone else. So they learnt early, rejection didn't matter because they'd just go, okay, fine, go somewhere else. It, they didn't spend hours with the ticker tape going through the head going, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? How do I need to change? Blah, blah, blah. And I always look at that and go, oh, there's something we should all learn about that. So they just, they don't take it personally and they don't eat themselves up when they get a rejection. So I think, I think there's an, a bit of that that happened to me, which helped early on. And, you know, this whole idea of defining the mission. So kind of back to your rugby analogy, I think it was the female women's England rugby team, and they had gotten to the finals, World Cup finals. And they were talking about how they hadn't won the World Cup the year before. And this was a much harder game, a much harder adversary they were facing. And the coach pulled them together. And it was a really interesting story. So it's about how they asked each one of the members why do you want to win this game? I want you to go back to your room and I want to, I want you to think about why do you want to win this game? And they all recorded on their phones, a little video, and she put the video together and showed it to the entire team. What an amazing story. I didn't know that. Oh, I love it. And so what they, what they, what that did is it was no longer that Kimberly was playing because my, I want to show my parents that I can do this. I was actually playing because Amanda's father was on his deathbed and this was probably one of the last things that he was ever going to see. And they came together and they won. And it is just, for me, that's defining the mission. That's exactly what they did is why are we doing this? And yeah. if you can do that for yourself, define your mission. Why are you doing the role you're doing? What do you yes. want to get out of life? What do you want your story to be? You know, all of us are going to end up in the grave one day. What do you want people to remember about you and what you achieved while you were here? Yep, so true. And I or just, even I a little, even maybe not even in the grave. It's you want to be 90. I always say you're 90 looking back. You're on a park bench. You're looking back at your life. You know, what was it all about? And we yeah. don't all have to be, you know, Angela Merkel or you know whomever else I don't know why we would I was talking about Angela Merkel this morning so she's maybe amazing not no but I mean she's amazing so <laughs> yeah or you know or, or Malala or you know incredible role models as they are we can't we can't we're not oh, I'm certainly don't. not going to be anything like that but I'm going to be satisfied that there were certain things I said you know I'm going to give them a go and I gave them a good go basically and I often I you know I my job is as an executive coach and I often when I'm coaching people I want them to think about that is you, we we very quickly can run down a road, but where is that road leading? And mm. are you being swept along with the crowd or are you actually standing out as an individual and doing what you think is right? 
And there's so many points in your life when you can actually make that change. And, you know, just hearing the way that your career has worked, I think it's inspiring because you've been very definitive about moving. You've been very definitive about your strengths and you've been very open-minded when you've comes to feedback that people have given you. And what I'd love to know is sort of around that, were there ever times when actually you either got feedback from somebody and you did something or you went in a direction, you immediately kind of went, ooh, I've, I've used my transferable skills, but actually I have jumped in the deep end and I am just about to drown. <laughs> oh, quite often. Oh no, gosh, my first, my first year running mm. business in the community, I, I, I think every day I, I wondered if I'd made a mistake. So it took a whole year. And I often say to people, if you're going to make, if you're going to make the shift, I don't know whether it's particular to the charity sector, but it's such a profound difference moving from a commercial world to the charity sector. You and, and both culturally, the way things operate, the way you get stuff done. Um, I I literally every day questioned myself over it. And almost to the day one year in, I woke up and went, this has got to stop. You've either got to get over yourself or you've got to leave. But you can't be gnawing away at yourself. This is not healthy or, or right for the organisation or fair, frankly. Um, so at Ripple Dissolve, I got over myself. And uh, here I am um, in my sixth year. So who knew that that would happen? Um, but no, there's no question of it. Uh, you know, when I went to HP, um, the, gut, the chap who had employed me was... Um, uh, removed from the company um, the day before I joined, literally. Um, so I didn't have sponsorship and he had a vision for what my role was about, which basically not necessarily anyone else had bought into. So I arrived with no sponsorship. People didn't really understand why I was there in a completely new role in a totally different sector in a totally different country. Um, and th that was actually an example where uh, it didn't work out. And I left after after a year. Um, it, it wasn't right. Everyone was very welcoming. Everyone tried to make it work. But there were just too many things that then became very tricky to get over and not least myself in, in the mix. So um, I think it doesn't always work. It's not. But everyone sort of has a job in their life where it didn't quite work or it didn't help necessarily. But, you know, as they always say, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. So um, I think there is a lot in that. And both times you've, you've talked about this time period of a year. So you said you gave yourself a year in business in the community. And after that year, you were able to recognize I've got to stop self-flagellating and I need to get to a place where actually I just, I can recognize the fact I've been put in here and I'm doing this role. And then you just took off and you did it. And then another one, you said you gave it a year and you said, this isn't right. I'm moving on. Do you think that year is an important time period? Well, it must be. I mean, or certainly for me. I do, I do tend to feel, though, sometimes people judge things too quickly. Now, Absolutely. I know sometimes people go, look, you'll know it's really wrong for you within six weeks, in which case jump. And there's an argument that says, did I know that um, in, that, in that role? But, but actually, I think possibly you're learning, the thing that you're learning that can be quite a struggle possibly happens in that year. So for good or bad, I would say, you know, frankly, my first year at BT... I could, could, I'd gone from a company of 1,000 to a company of 130,000. The mechanisms you used to get stuff done were profoundly different. I felt like I was hitting treacle the whole time. Mm. Um, and after a year, I'd worked it out. So I, I do think there is, and it was, it, that, was, that was a year again. 
So I do think there's that period if you've got to settle in, you go through your honeymoon, you kind of learn what your job's about, um, you kind of create the strategy or whatever you've got to do, and then you start delivering. But but in that meantime, you're working out how effective you're being. So I think at that point, um, you know, it, people talk about joining a board and saying the first year, you know, you perhaps won't be able to contribute, well, you certainly won't be contributing the way you'd like to in years two, three and beyond. Mm. Um, so I think, yes, I think you're right. It's possibly, it is possibly an appropriate period of time. And it I don't think like- it's set in stone, but I think it's it's there or thereabouts. And it feels like you get through a full cycle, like a year is a full cycle. So you've got all the reportings that you need to do. You recognize all the regulatory requirements that are coming in. You're able to sort of see how things function, you know, if like even in an inclusion and diversity role, you know, you've got, you, you know, the kind of the things, the, the main pillars of the year, like, you know, International Women's Day is going to be coming up, you know, International Day with Persons with Disabilities. You have in your head that cycle and I think in any role, giving it a year, this is my, this is my working theory. So I'm, I'm trying to get you to validate yeah. my theory is what I'm trying to do here. My working <laughs> theory is that give yourself a year in a role unless there is something within the organization that actually you cannot stand for. So again, going back to your mission values purpose, if it's something that they, you know, everyone is embezzling money and it is <laughs> not, it's not the right place, whistleblow and get out. But yeah. at the same time, otherwise give it a year. And I, I'm so encouraged by the fact that you had that drowning feeling that you felt that, you know, that, that self-deprecation, that whole, because a lot of times I think we often see senior leaders as swans you know, nailing it, being able to give the presentations, speeches that were likely written by somebody else, but they, they stand up there and they do it and you see them and you're like, they're not struggling in their first year of their job. Why am I? So I think it's really important to hear that from senior leaders. Okay. Well, I, I completely validate your theory. I think it's Thank spot you. on. So no, no worries there. Um, and, and by the way, in those moments of, of doubt, they are the times when you turn to the people that know you best. And what I can guarantee what they'll all turn around. And if you're going, I'm completely rubbish at my job now, you know, they'll go, but you're not. And you know you're not. And what are you good at? And da, da, da. And they will unpick that, that awful ticker tape story that's whirring around your head and, and tell you to get over yourself and stop talking nonsense. And if you're, and I mean, again, not, I mean, advertising, of course, for KLJ consulting and coaching, just to be clear, but if your organization allows you to have a coach, find a coach as well. Cause if you, a coach can also help you see your blind spots, recognize your strengths, help you to validate yourself in a way that maybe you are not doing to yourself as well. I would completely agree, but I, my experience is sometimes, and maybe this is, you'll tell me if this is the distinction between good coaches and not. I think sometimes I want a bit of tough love from a coach. That's the difference between a so coach. So I, I don't want, okay, great. Because I'll I don't come want and coach you. I can come and coach you and give you some tough love, Amanda. Yeah, yeah. But I don't want people to go, what, why are you thinking that? And give me an example when you've had, it's like, yeah. please, can you just go, come on, you know that that's not true. I yeah. kind of want that. Yeah, um, that high, I think that that's high Yes, yes. The high challenge. You need the high challenge. Absolutely. Not high too support. much the delicate stuff. Get in yeah. there. Yep. High support, high challenge. That's a good coach. So um, awesome. We You talked about being on a board and I want to make sure because we're, I mean, the time is flying by and I just could talk to you all day, but you talked about being on a board. So you're non-executive director on how many boards now? Oh, gosh. Um, uh, only the one. 
Lloyd's Banking Group um, and I chair the Responsible Business Committee. I mean, previously I was on the National Youth Orchestra Board for 10 years. I was a member of the Davis Review, wasn't a formal board. I was on the board of Mothercare, only woman at one point. Kind of that. slightly bonkers, but hey, there we go. Um, and, and I've been on a, a couple of other charity boards and things. But but in terms of PLC... Right now, it's... Yeah. Right now, it's... <laughs> Fabulous. And tell me a bit about, so you were talking about how within that first year being a NED, so we use that term NED, non-executive director, for those who aren't familiar with it, you know, being a NED is very different from being an executive. And you said that you sometimes for the first year, when you're on any kind of a board or specifically as a NED, clarity around that would be interesting. You didn't really feel like you were saying anything or contributing the way you wanted to. So can you kind of talk me through how... Again, this is this is unpacking a, a huge thing, but with transferable skills, when you move into a NED role, it's very different from being an executive. And when you're sitting there and you have to advise in that NED capacity, how are you able to bring those transferable skills into that environment? Well, I think thinking about, I mean, you're recruited onto a board for your skills. So the good news is, there is a reason for you to be contributing from day one, actually. So, you know, what, what's the most likely place I would have contributed on the Lloyds board in my first year? It would have been marketing, customer, comms, policy, responsible business. But what I was clearly less familiar with, um, because I, I haven't grown up in banking, um, is the balance sheet. So it's the, it's the risk and audit side um, is a significant step forward if you're not familiar with it. So and, and frankly, you know, all the acronyms, everything else, you know, I have a little kind of sheet printout of all the acronyms. And sometimes I still have to look them up and check, check what they all are. So inevitably, some of that, once you become more familiar with it, it becomes more second nature. But but you, the thing is, it's if you're thinking, what, what's the concept here that I'm responding to, even with your core skills, unless you understand basically some of those concepts or beyond basically in terms of the market, because we're a regulated business, then that's quite tricky. So uh, I think, to be honest, it's almost like learning a foreign language. Yeah. It becomes clearer the more you're absorbed in it. And then it becomes second nature. So it becomes much easier then to apply your core skills to that issue. Now, clearly, Chairman of Lloyd's is not expecting me to make great, wise and wonderful observations of the audit papers. Um, it, it would be highly unlikely I would be able to do so. But could I challenge maybe the premise of maybe an audit on something? More than probably you should hope I could if, if I felt it was an issue. So I think it's being comfy with that distinction. Some people only choose boards where they feel they're entire. So it's, very, it's like a nature identical to their current job, but it's in a non-exec capacity. Not always. I mean, it also means that obviously you couldn't do it concurrent with your day job because it would be by definition possibly a, a competitor. So that wouldn't work necessarily. But even I've heard people talk about if you join a very big board of a business that really should be very intuitive for you, um, it's still quite difficult because you have to get familiar with the issues. You have to feel comfy in the room. There's all sorts of things. And it is quite important to listen at the beginning and really absorb what's happening, because otherwise you might make judgments or you might might have a view that frankly is wrong. So I think it's a it's a nice bit of nuanced balance going on there um, to contribute um, 
enough at the beginning that you're one you're useful and also your your confidence isn't eroded so if you said nothing for the first year i think you might feel a bit rubbish at the end of that but then beyond that um yeah yeah you will just work into it i mean i guess by definition probably if i was to join another board tomorrow it's like each time you would hope that year can concertina um but it, again it all depends on the transition the sector that you transition to some things just to pick up from there one of them was sitting and listening very important and when you're listening and you have that internal monologue that's constantly going on saying, you shouldn't be in the room, you don't know what's going on, you have no idea what an audit is, you're sitting in the back seat here, that is not helpful. So if one can switch that monologue off when they're sitting and listening, and then write down the acronyms, this is something I tell all of my clients, is when you're new to a role, write down acronyms, find a friend who knows what they mean, and ask them outside of the meeting. If it's if it's important in the meeting and it looks like there's a few people that are kind of looking a bit confused, it might be helpful to say, would you mind if we kind of explored what that acronym means for those of us who don't know in the room? Um, but I also love the fact that it's, it's that eroding your confidence is something that you talked about. And we can do that so easily, can't we? When we sit there and we don't know what's going on, but that thing you said at the beginning with you're in the room for a reason. They brought you in there because you have your perspective and other people have their perspective. And so rely on the people that know about audits, rely on the people that can look at the balance sheet to do that bit. Meanwhile, learning in the background, but then you chip in when they're saying about marketing, that's your bread and butter. No one else in the room is going to know what you know. And I often say that to clients, when you walk into a meeting, you're in that room for a reason. If you're not get out of the meeting, why are you sitting there anyway? But you're in the meeting for a reason. So why are you there? And that's, so true. I, I think it's so transferable. Everything you said about being on a board transferable to, I think, any meeting, anything you're doing in your life. I thought that was fabulous. Yeah. I think the other thing is don't ever underestimate that if, it, if you've got a core skill, the chances are you really will know 80, I'm making this up, but 80% more than anybody else. Yeah. So don't assume as you as you convey your views that they'll understand what you're talking about. (laughs) So just as if they were talking about an issue, a very detailed issue on audit or something, or maybe not so detailed. So I think that's the other thing is it's really important to take confidence that you are helping that room by sharing your view. I could not agree more. And I want to just add one extra layer on that, which is don't be intimidated by the other people who have that 80% knowledge about their area. No one in this world knows everything. No one in this world knows everything. And you cannot berate yourself for not knowing the in and out details that someone else is bringing in from their expertise. Because I think we do that so often. So true. So we are so close to being out of time, which makes me want to cry. But I have to ask you our two final questions. So this is the Undiscovered You podcast. And along this journey of using your transferable skills, moving from sector to sector, you know, all this defining the mission, figuring out what you want to do with your life. What did you discover about yourself? Gosh, I hate I hate these questions. They force you to be reflective. Nightmare. We're not good at that, are we? Um, well, I've gotten comfier with the fact that I'm an introvert, which kind of no one believes. Um, I've got comfy with understanding how restorative it is to have time on my own and play the piano and do stuff like that. So that's been helpful. 
I think I've learned that for all that there are days when, you know, my even now, as old as I am, my confidence isn't, you know, always stellar. I'd love to know what it feels like to be super confident, but that's not a state of grace. But but the 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 great the positive of that is it, it, it I've got a remarkable drive, which I don't quite know where it comes from. So funnily enough, that the you know, I, I know it's a well-versed and possibly now not helpful um, kind of thought about imposter. But weirdly, the, the other side of that is this whole piece around um, drive. So you don't ask to have drive. You don't go to the shop and buy a couple of pounds of drive, please. You know, it's a thing. And, and, that, and that's helped me profoundly, actually, over the years. That's, that's so interesting. It's not something I'd ever thought about is if you are someone who's very driven, you are very driven. And if someone else is not very driven, it's really hard to relate and understand why, why are you not driven? Why is, and again, this is obviously something that we're born with. I think it is. I just don't think you can, I don't think, I really don't think you can conjure up drive from, from nowhere. Definitely not two pounds at the corner shop. That is for sure. No. <laughs> um, and then final question is, what is the best piece of advice that you've ever received, heard, or given someone else? Well, I mean, of course, the tricky thing is over a piece of advice almost has a time stamp on it because there's that lovely, what's that lovely quote? A man has no ears for that which he cannot hear. So it's about the relevance of things in, in the moment and you make them relevant. It's like you never see pushchairs until you have children and they're everywhere or a particular. It's like a piece of advice becomes relevant when you need it. Yeah. So I think on that basis, you can't take one piece and say, that's it. That was the defining piece of advice of my life. However, having said that, if I look back and go, I've now made sense. So at the great age of 58, I've now made sense of the various bits of advice that I've put together. And I think knowing myself and getting comfy with myself. So people talk about, you know, be confident. I think that's, that's like ridiculous. That's like saying run a, run a marathon in three seconds. You can't just say that to someone. It doesn't happen that way. Hmm. Get under the skin of that a bit more and get really put effort into knowing yourself and I think if you can do that and that will probably be hugely informed by your very great friends your friend or friend whatever that lovely friend friend tour friend tour thank you that that the essence of that and really putting a bit of effort into that in your 20s I think will super serve you well through the subsequent decades and and of course it's not too late do it at any time but I, I think that's probably as I've reflected, so would have served me better, but he's beginning to serve me at last quite well now. <laughs> I think that's so brilliant. And, and the idea of having that kind of introversion preference um, is one of those things that a lot of people fight against because extroverted preferences are generally seen as, oh, that's what we expect in a leader. And actually it's, it's finding that it's not about whether you can stand up and give a speech or whether you can talk in a meeting. It's about how do you need to recharge? Exactly. Do you, yeah, do you, like you said, Amanda, do you need to sit down and play the piano? Do you need to go off? I, I spoke um, to, to Sarah Bentley, who's the CEO of Thames Water and in Authentic You, and she talked about how she needs to sit down and read a book. She needs quiet time where none of her children are allowed to speak to her for a set period of time. 
And, you know, you need to know what is it that you, Amanda, what is it that I, Kimberly, need to recharge? I don't need to know what Amanda needs to recharge. She doesn't need to know what I need. You need to find that in yourself. And I think if you, especially if you're in your 20s and early 30s and you haven't discovered that yet, find it out. Because again, I think we just run down this wheel and this life and this path and we don't take that time to stop and reflect. And it's so important to find that out about yourself. I love that advice. (laughs) <laughs> love that advice. Amanda, this has been absolutely, I mean, inspirational, so full of some amazing nuggets. And I can't imagine there's a listener that's going to go away not having learned something. And I just love, I love the fact that you show up as you, you always do. And I, <laughs> I absolutely love that. So thank you for showing up as you. Thank you for coming on today. Um, and I look forward to getting the feedback on this podcast for sure, because I know I learned a lot. Well, thank you for doing the series. How wonderful it is for everybody. Thank you. A huge thank you to Amanda McKenzie for being my guest this week. Reflecting back on our conversation, one thing I thought of was the fact that passion might be something that actually sparks your drive. So don't be discouraged if you feel like you weren't born with drive. I think that passion and drive go hand in hand. So go and discover your passion, find that out, and you might find your drive. Thanks again for listening. Join us next week when I speak to Paul Birkenfeld, all about how he has the skills to pay the bills. And don't forget to subscribe, like, and comment below. And I hope that you're one step closer to discovering the undiscovered you.